Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible's open up to Exodus, the 19th chapter. And I'll invite you to be finding Exodus chapter 19 in your Bible as well. We will be in a number of different places in the Old and New Testament this morning, and so following along in your Bible would be really, really helpful. It'll help you, it'll help me as we maximize our time together in the Word of God. It's great to see everybody today. So glad that you are here. It is a beautiful fall morning that the Lord has granted to us, and it's just a joy and a delight to be able to be together with God's people and God's house, doing God's things, and we have guests with us, and we really appreciate the fact that you chose to be with us today, and we hope that you're being uh, encouraged and built up by the things that we are involving ourselves in, and if you have a question or if an observation about anything that's being practiced or said or done here today, feel free to bring that to our attention, and we'll be glad to sit down with the Bible and discuss those things. In Exodus, the 19th chapter... We read about the children of Israel being summoned to assemble at Mount Sinai as they are about to receive the law of God. And as they come to that fateful morning, the Bible tells us this in Exodus 19, beginning in verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, And then God answered him in the thunder. Drop down now to chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, what a truly awesome scene this must have been. If I'm getting in a time machine and I have the opportunity to go back and to witness any events in history, this right here is on my top ten list. That old Charlton Heston movie back in 1956, The Ten Commandments, they did their best to try and capture the spectacular nature of these events. But I'm going to tell you, nothing can truly duplicate what it must have been like to hear and to see that in person. The thunder, the lightning, the cloud, the smoke, the fire, the trumpet blast, the quaking of the mountain itself, all of those sounds, all of those images would have been just absolutely impossible for any of us to truly recreate. And yet, and yet there is one aspect of this incredible scene that we are recreating This very morning. Did you notice it? It's right there in verse 17. There in verse 17 we are told that the Israelites assembled together to meet with God. We're doing that right now, aren't we? We have come here today to meet with God. We got up early this morning, got ourselves dressed, got ourselves prepared, came to this location so that we could do that very thing to meet with the Lord. Now it is true, someone will say, it is true that God is, God is everywhere. God is not confined and contained to just this box, these four walls, this location on 500 Ritchie Lane. That is absolutely so. 
But it is also true that when God's people congregate together in a spirit of reverence and holiness, when we come together at His command, then we are meeting with the Lord in a very special sense. We have come together today to give praise and honor and glory to Almighty God. Just think about that. We are coming before the Creator of the universe today. We are here today, much like the Israelites, to receive instruction and direction from the very Word of God. We are here today to remember and to commemorate the sacrifice of the Son of God. In a word, we are here today to worship. Which begs the question, how's your worship going? How are you doing with that? Are you worshiping well this morning? Are you focused on who you need to be focused on? Are you centered on the reasons as to why we are here and what we are trying to accomplish? Are you making the most out of this incredible opportunity right now to meet with God? Let's be honest. Sometimes, sometimes we don't maximize these meetings. And there's all kinds of reasons as to why that happens. Maybe it's because this just becomes so, it just becomes so routine for us. The fact that we come here and we do this on such a regular basis, multiple times throughout the week, maybe for some of us, maybe this just, well, just kind of loses its specialness in our minds and it's not as unique and extraordinary as what happened there in Exodus 19. Maybe it's not a maximized effort because, well, because we're just distracted with all kinds of other things that are going on in our lives and as a result, we're not able to concentrate And we're not able to give this the gravity and the weight that it deserves. Maybe it's because we enter into this worship assembly with with expectations that are just maybe just misplaced. Maybe the worship leaders, they don't quite lead us in the direction that we were really hoping for today. There's all kinds of reasons, all kinds of excuses for why worship sometimes falls short. But this morning, I want to figure out how to correct those problems. I want to figure out how I can improve my worship. I want to figure out how I can be a better worshiper. I want to see these assemblies for what they truly are. A special opportunity to meet with God. And this morning, that's what I want to do for the next few minutes. I want to talk about some very practical ideas that will help us to make the most of these meetings so that we can give and we can receive the maximum benefit from them. Let me share with you Eight commandments for better worship. Somebody maybe says, Josh, well, why aren't we doing ten commandments? That's what Moses was receiving, was the ten commandments. Well, number one, I'm not Moses, so I'm not going to try to duplicate what he did. Secondly, that opening section that we just read there at the beginning of the ten commandments already gave us a couple of commandments to kind of get our minds going in the right direction as it pertains to worship. God begins the commandments by saying what? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Worship is for me. Don't be bowing down. Don't be serving any kind of graven or carved images. Don't give my worship to something else. Don't give my worship to someone else. You give that for me. Those kinds of foundational ideas that God commanded Israel long ago, I think that helps to kind of set the stage for us to now think about some more specific commandments that are outlined for us elsewhere in Scripture that will help us to offer worship unto God that is worthy of His excellence and His greatness. 
Are you ready to start digging out those commandments? Let's just start right now. Commandment number one. Thou shalt not come to worship dirty. Since we're here in Exodus, would you just jump ahead a few chapters to chapter 30? In Exodus chapter 30, there's some instructions given here to the Levitical priests about administering the worship that would take place at the tabernacle. What all was that to involve? Well, notice what the Lord says to Moses as given these instructions to the priest. Notice they're beginning in verse 18. You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. and You shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. Die. Now, what's the principle here? The principle here is that worship has always involved cleansing, purity, holiness, being set apart. And it meant that in a very literal and physical sense for those people living under the Old Covenant. Of course, under the New Covenant, we're not talking about a physical cleaning, making sure that you've washed your hands and you've washed clean behind your ears. No, 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 no. We're talking about being spiritually clean, spiritually pure. And the corresponding passage of that would be in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, the Hebrew writer here, as he is building some ideas about the importance of our assembling together, how we stir each other up when we come together, that would be those well-known verses, verse 24 and verse 25. But before saying that about the assembly, he says some things about the very idea of just approaching God. How can we even approach God? What makes that possible? Well, that's possible because of our high priest. That's Jesus. And what does he say about that? Hebrews 10 verse 21. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Notice this. With our hearts sprinkled clean clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And so when I get up and I say, thou shalt not come to worship dirty, what we're talking about here is coming to worship with sin in our lives. Coming to worship with unconfessed sin in our lives. It's the idea of coming to church with dirty souls. And I realize that even as I make this point, I realize there is a sense in which we are all sinners. I understand that and you understand it. But what we're talking about here is unrepentant sin. Willful sin. And if you do that, if you come to church with that kind of sin in your life, it's going to wreck your worship. Unrepentant sinners, they run away from true worship. They cannot worship. They don't like worship. Why? Because they're always having to hold God at arm's length. When you know that things are not right between you and the Lord, you cannot fully engage. You cannot worship with integrity and honesty in your heart. And so what happens is, is you start, we start looking around, you start nitpicking. I didn't like this. Or that song was off key. Or that prayer was too long. You start finding fault in everything, anything, that will keep you from having to address the real elephant in the room, and that is the sin that exists in your life. By the way, you realize, that this means that you cannot use worship to try and atone for your sins. That here I did all these bad things on Saturday night, these bad and evil things that I should not have done. So what I'll do is I'll come to church on Sunday morning and things will be made right between me and God. No, it doesn't. 
That's not the way that that works. That does not work. It will not work. God does not accept dirty worshipers. And so commandment number one means that I need to take care of my sins before I approach the throne of God. That I need to confess that. I need to repent of that. I need to seek forgiveness for that. If I don't do that, then the worship service is probably going to be bad for me. Everybody else may be having a great worship period, but me, if I come in dirty, then I'm not going to be able to worship God with a clear, a clean conscience. And since we're thinking now about hindrances to our worship, let's just go ahead and get commandment number two. Thou shalt not worship if you have a problem with your brother or your sister in Christ. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to read the words of Jesus. I consider that to be definitive. And so absolutely clear that very little comment is going to need to be made on my part. I continue to be stunned to hear of Christians in the same congregation who have not spoken to one another in weeks or months or maybe even years. People who belong to the same spiritual family and yet there is bitterness, there is resentment, there is unresolved strife between them. And somehow they think that they can come to church Sunday after Wednesday after Sunday after Wednesday and that their worship is going to be acceptable to God? How is that possible in light of what Jesus says in Matthew 5? Would you find Matthew 5? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about what we are to do and in fact what we are not to do whenever we have conflict with a brother or a sister. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this in verse 23. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If we are at odds with a brother or a sister and we try to go on with our worship without taking care of that, without even at least making an attempt to take care of that, then we are violating the express command of Jesus. That kind of lingering, that kind of simmering discord within the family of God, that messes up worship. In fact, sometimes not only does that mess up the worship of the people involved, but it messes up the worship of everybody else. When we know that that's going on, that affects all of us. So Jesus says you need to get that fixed. You need to get that fixed before you come in here so that you can worship God as you ought. Which brings me to commandment number three. Thou shalt not neglect the important work of preparation for worship. You know, there are a lot of activities in life for which you need very little preparation to attend or to take part in. You know, you can go visit Cumberland Falls and pretty much all the preparation that you need is to just check the weather forecast, make sure it's going to be a nice day, and make sure you got enough gas in your vehicle to get all the way over there. You can jump in, jump up, and you and your, your spouse can jump up, you and your family, you can jump up and go to the movies with hardly any kind of forethought, with hardly any kind of planning. All you need to do is just make sure you've got money in your wallet and make sure your wife's purse is sufficiently stuffed with snacks and drinks because you don't want to pay for the outrageous concession prices there. Just a couple of other things. Those are just some ideas of some activities that you can do that require minimal preparation. But what if, What if you're invited to go and have lunch with with the president or with some other kind of dignitary? Do you just kind of wander in for that? Just kind of show up? What about 
something like the CPA exam or the bar exam. You just stroll in off the street and say, hey, I, I think I'll take this test today. Yeah, sign me up for that. No, in fact, I'm going to guess you probably made even some preparations in order to take your driver's license exam. There are events in life that because of their importance and because of their nature, those events demand that we do some things ahead of time to get ready. Some things that we we get in place, we make some special concessions, some special arrangements so that we can do those things in the best possible way. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that worship, worshiping God, is one of those events. It is one of those occasions that demands preparation. I'm thinking here of the book of Nehemiah. Would you find Nehemiah chapter 8? In Nehemiah chapter 8, there is this amazing assembly that takes place. It involves the exiles who had returned home after the Babylonian captivity. These people have rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And they have gathered now here at the water gate to hear the reading of God's Word. I want you to notice, though, something about that gathering and something about that occasion. In Nehemiah chapter 8, look in verse 4. This is one of those little notes that we would just kind of read and zip right past. But stop and think it through. In Nehemiah 8 and verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. These people had done some preparation, hadn't they? Somebody went to the trouble of getting that podium ready so that the reader, Ezra, and whoever else was reading the law, so that they could be elevated, people could see them, people could hear them clearly. They put some work into that. And the preparation didn't end there. Drop down to verse 7. In verse 7, also Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Achab and Shebathiah and Hodiah and Maasai and Kalita, Azariah, Jezebed, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites. Man, I did good with that. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Think about that. Somebody had the forethought to select those men and to get them lined up and to get them stationed where they needed to be so that when the law was read, they could be in a position to help people understand the reading of God's Word. Those people were on it when it came to preparation. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that I think this right here is what separates serious worshipers from casual worshipers. Casual worshipers, they do imagine that they can just kind of wander in and apparently somebody, I don't know, the the nebulous they, they are going to serve up this amazing and wonderful worship service for me without me having gone to the slightest effort at all to prepare my heart, to prepare my mind, to prepare my physical body to worship God. On the other hand, serious worshipers are the ones who say, I need to make some preparations. I need to get me ready for this special occasion. I want to be able to worship God, not just at any level, I want to be able to worship my God at a high level. I need to get my alarm set on Saturday night so that I'm ready to get up on Sunday. I need to be planning my commute time so that I can arrive at the church building and be there on time. I need to have my Bible and my notebook at the ready when it's time for the preaching. I need to have my contribution already set aside. Have that check written out a time so that I am prepared to give when the collection plate is passed. I need to be well rested. How important is that to say? that I need to make sure that my physical body is rested 
before I come to worship. You know, sometimes we make little jokes and little digs about falling asleep in church and we chuckle about that. But you know what? If you go to a symphony or if you go to a Broadway production, a play, and you fall asleep during the show, that is considered a great insult to the people who are involved in that. We show up at McKaylee's play here next month and all of us are just back there, ah, just sleeping through it all. She's going to take that personally. She's going to see that as a personal offense. And I wonder sometimes, I wonder how God feels when He sees His worshipers snoozing, or as I often say, kind of agreeing with the preaching an awful lot. What's God think of that when He sees that? We need to make preparations. We need to take seriously the opportunity to be prepared so that we can be alert, so that we can be active, so that we can be engaged in worship. And even as I say that, I do realize that there's always going to be some exceptions. There's going to be extenuating circumstances that disrupt and frustrate that preparation. I got stuck behind traffic. There was a slow-moving tractor. There was a car wreck, and that caused us and the family to be late today. Or, you know, I started taking some new medicine and that's causing me to be drowsy and haven't quite figured that out and worked that out with my body yet. I understand about that. And more importantly, the Lord understands about that. But if on a regular basis, over and over, I find that I am not prepared to worship God, my mind is running in a million different places, my mind is somewhere else, and I have not readied myself to approach the throne of God, then my worship is going to suffer And God is not going to be pleased. I will remind you that that passage that we started with in Exodus chapter 19, when the people of Israel assembled at Mount Sinai, I will remind you that God gave those people three days to do what? To get ready. There was some preparations that He wanted them to make so that they could be there in a right frame of mind, so that they could do that in the right kind of way. You and I need to take a cue from those people and not neglect our own preparation. Which brings me to this fourth commandment, commandment number four. Thou shalt not allow reverence to war against joy. It seems that sometimes in religious circles there is a tendency to run to extremes, to either run to that extreme or to run over here to this extreme. There are religious groups, for example, who absolutely major in joy and emotion and displays of that. And they have all kinds of fire and all kinds of fervor about that. But oftentimes, you find that those groups are often very unscriptural in the practices that they are involved in. There's no semblance of decency or order in their worship. On the other hand, there are religious groups that, yeah, they worship according to the right pattern. They're they're doing the right things. But they seem to be lacking any sense of joy or even any sense of emotion. It's, it's spiritless and it's stoic and it's, it's without feeling. Well, the Bible would call for us to find, to find some balance in that. Because while there does need to be order and decency and decorum and reverence in our worship, that must never be at the expense of real joy. Look at me in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. Let me stitch together a couple of passages. A couple of passages that maybe we've never really noticed before. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, what is described here, I, I will say, this is Old Testament worship. And so there's certainly going to be some difference in the forms. But notice the spirit that is behind it. In 1 Chronicles chapter 15, look at what's said in verse 16. 1 Chronicles 15 verse 16. David commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, notice this, to raise sounds of joy 
to raise sounds of joy. Don't, don't, don't just go do, go through that worship and do that, but no, do that with joy. How about in the book of Ezra? Ezra's just a hop and a skip away from Chronicles. In Ezra chapter 6, here are those returning exiles after they've completed the reconstruction of the temple. And there's some worship that ensues in the fallout from that. In Ezra chapter 6, look in verse 16. The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles, they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. You go on to read in the next couple of verses that they offered those sacrifices, hundreds of sacrifices to the Lord with joy. Let me add one of the Psalms here in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, the psalmist here, he describes the great emotion that he felt in his heart whenever he would go along with other worshipers to the house of God. In Psalm 42, this is verse 4. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and I would lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. The Old Testament lays a foundation that a big part of worship is rejoicing in the Lord. And that theme continues on throughout the New Testament as well. For example, in James 5 and in verse 13, James says, if anyone is cheerful, let him sing. In 1 Thessalonians 1 and in verse 6, Paul talks there about receiving the Word of God with joy. The joy of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, there's that simple admonition in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16, that says to rejoice always. And that would absolutely include rejoicing in worship. And so, yes, we want to be reverent. Hebrews 12, verse 28 says, acceptable worship is to be done with reverence and awe. There's no doubt about that. But you know what? Folks were reverent in the Old Testament, and they still had joy. And folks were reverent in the New Testament, And they still had joy. And that's because reverence and joy are not mutually exclusive. No, they can coexist. And so I need to ask myself, what do I feel as I worship God? I'm not saying that you need to be openly demonstrative in showing your joy. No, I'm simply asking, is it there? Do I have joy in my heart? That famous verse, it's on the screen at the beginning of every service here, John 4, 24. True worship, it consists of equal parts, truth and spirit. Does my worship have a spirit of joy? Am I glad to be here? Am I happy as we sing these songs? Am I delighted to get to go to God in prayer? Am I eager to hear the Word of God? Am I cheerful in my giving? God loves a cheerful giver. Let's never be tricked into thinking that reverence is somehow the enemy of joy. It is not. Good worship is going to have a healthy balance of both. Now, for as much as I would like to just go around the room, I'm just going to personally just crank up the joy quotient on everybody here. I need to remember this fifth commandment because commandment number five is, thou shalt resist the temptation to be the worship police. And let's just be honest, this is a trap that is so easy for us to fall into. If others, for example, are a little bit more reserved in showing their emotion, well, it's easy for me to say, well, well, he doesn't have any joy. He doesn't have any joy in his worship. It's lifeless and it's spiritless. 
Or you know what? Here's somebody who maybe is very joyful in their worship. And so they sing very loud. Oh, look at her. Singing so loud. She's just trying to get everybody's attention. She's just trying to draw attention to herself. Or you know what about that guy who gets up and goes to the back for, you know, every five minutes to the bathroom? Come on, were they giving hundred dollar bills out there or what? What's he keep getting up for? What's that about? Or how long is this guy going to preach today? He just likes to hear himself talk. That's why he's doing that. And before you know it, I'm paying attention to everybody else's worship, not paying nearly enough attention to my own worship. In Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, once again, Jesus deals with that. In Matthew chapter 7, here's a passage that is often misused, but it fits right here with this commandment. In Matthew 7 and in verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not... That you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, oh, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? It is hypocritical. It is wrong for me to say, oh, look at that person over there, not worshiping right, when by me looking at that person, I... I am not worshiping right. What I need to understand is that not only is my worship not dependent on others, but even more fundamentally, I am not responsible for the worship of others. God sees them, God knows them, and God's going to take care of that. In the meantime, God has not appointed me to be the chief worship inspector. I have not been tasked with going around and busting people for poor worship or worship that I just don't believe is quite up to snuff. No, that's not my job. What my job is, what I need to be doing, is I need to get my eyes off of others and I need to look at myself. I need to focus on how I can worship God acceptably. Which absolutely leads right into this sixth commandment. And that is, thou shalt be on guard for hypocrisy in your own worship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is a text that is often read in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. And it is an enormously important passage. It helps us to develop the proper mindset toward that memorial feast. In the middle of all of that discussion, Paul says that actually in worship what happens is, is we make a statement. You may not realize that that's what we're doing, but that's what we do. We make a statement in worship. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says in verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Worship says something, doesn't it? It says something about what we believe. It says something about what we stand for. It says something about who we are. At least, at least it's supposed to. Because what happens if we come to worship? And we go through all of the proper motions, but we don't really believe what it is that we're doing. What happens if we are just play acting? What's the other word for that? Well, the other word for that is hypocrisy. And that happens from time to time. That happens maybe, for example, when we sing a song like, Here am I, send me. But then we have no intention whatsoever of being sent. We have no intention of going and sharing the gospel with others except for, except for within the confines of these four walls. That happens when maybe I amen a prayer that I didn't even really even listen to or pay attention to. I didn't really make that prayer my own. That happens when we go to the back and we shake hands with the preacher and we say, man, that was a great sermon today, preacher. But then we really have no intention of making application of that sermon in our own lives. That's play acting. 
That's hypocrisy. We pretended to be a worshiper. We pretended to be making a statement about our faith. We pretended to show our devotion to the Lord, but in reality, we did not. In Matthew 15, Jesus had something to say there about hypocritical worshipers. As He speaks here to the scribes and to the Pharisees of His day, in Matthew 15, this is verse 7, Jesus says it, You're hypocrites! Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. If we're not careful, we can be involved in that very thing. We can be involved in sham worship, fake worship, hypocritical worship. That's why we need to always be striving for sincerity in our worship. And I think that can be helped whenever we follow this seventh commandment. Commandment number seven. Thou shalt gauge your geography in worship. In Luke chapter 19, please, let me show you what I mean by that. In Luke 19, I'm reading here about Jesus coming to the city of Jericho. And here he encounters a man by the name of Zacchaeus. And we're told in Luke 19, beginning in verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. He was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. What Zacchaeus did was locate himself geographically so that he could see Jesus clearly. And I wonder sometimes if maybe we gave more attention to where we locate ourselves geographically in worship, perhaps maybe we could see God a little more clearly. Perhaps maybe we could worship Him a little better. I have never, ever in all of my life have anybody come to me and tell me, hey, we got tickets to that concert. Yeah, it's sold out. And we got tickets to the concert. We got the best seats in the house. Oh, really? Where's your seats at? Oh, I'll tell you what. We're in row triple Z, seat 999. We're in the very back of the arena. Oh, it's going to be great. You ever heard anybody say that? I've never heard anybody say, oh, we're so excited to be going to the big game. Yeah, we're sitting in the fourth deck of the stadium. We're going to have to bring a set of binoculars. We'll bring a couple of sets of binoculars. We'll bring binoculars to look through another set of binoculars so that we can see the players down on the field and see if we can make them out. It's going to be great. I've never heard anybody say that. Nobody says that. But then we come to church. And which section of the auditorium tends to fill up the fastest? Is it the front? No. It's usually the back. And why is it that the back rows, this is true everywhere, why is it that the back rows are consistently full? I can certainly understand visitors maybe not being comfortable with coming and sitting down front, being this close to the action. I can get that for a visitor. And I can certainly understand about parents who have small children that maybe need to be taken out, taken to the back from time to time. I can understand about that. I can understand about somebody who's got some health problems, maybe some bladder issues, they need to have quick access to the bathroom. I understand about all that, but what about the rest of us? And listen, I'm not trying to make a knock on anybody who sits in or near the back. If you sit in the back and you sit there consistently and you find that you are a five-star worshiper, there's not a problem for you sitting in the back, then hey, good for you. But if you are one of those people who has trouble hearing the invitation talk on Wednesday night, 
Or if you're one of those folks who has trouble seeing the PowerPoint for the lessons on Sunday, could that maybe be improved a little bit by getting a little bit closer to the action? If someone else's kids on the pew where you normally sit, if those kids serve as a little bit of a distraction for you, or maybe if sitting in the back, if here's all these heads in front of you, and you can now see with clarity who all is singing, and you can see who all is not singing, and that proves to be a real hindrance and interferes with your worship? Well, have you ever thought about maybe moving to a different location here in the auditorium? You can, you can do that. I understand that we are creatures of habit, but, but we don't have assigned seats here. Contrary to popular belief, there are no assigned seats here. Could your attention, could your retention, could it maybe be assisted if you sat somewhere different in the assembly? Just think about this. What if the Apostle Paul was the one who was going to be getting up and making the comments and directing our minds at the Lord's table this morning? Where would you want to be sitting if Paul's up here speaking? What if Moses is the one up here doing the preaching today? Where are you going to be sitting? I know where I'm going to be sitting. If David is going to come, not David Hatfield, but the David in the Bible, what if David is going to be leading our song service today? Where do you want to be? I want to be as close as I can. If Daniel is going to be leading our minds in prayer, where are you going to be sitting so that you could hear every word of that prayer? I know where I'm going to be sitting. Now, obviously, none of those men are going to be leading in our worship today. But God's servants will lead us in worship. And you may be able to improve your worship by adjusting your proximity. So that where you are located in the assembly, that it might lend itself to better participation. I think that's just a thought worth thinking about. Finally then, all of these commands this morning are really built upon this one command. They're undergirded by this eighth commandment, and that is this. Thou shalt offer only your best to the Lord. In 2 Samuel chapter 24... There's a great little worship principle to be found there. As King David comes to the threshing floor of Arona, David needs to make an offering to the Lord. And this good man by the name of Arona, he offers to give him everything that he needs to have that offering be brought about. He offers to to, to give him the threshing floor. He offers to give him the tools necessary to make the altar. He offers to give him the oxen itself for the sacrifice. He says, I'll just give it to you because you need it and because you're the king. But look at David's response. In 2 Samuel 24, this is verse 24, David says, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost Me nothing. I want you to understand that the principle that David sets forth here, it applies to more than just what we do when those collection baskets are passed. This is a principle that applies to every facet of our worship. What am I giving here? What am I putting in to this time? Am I doing my very best? I realize sometimes that yes, the worship leaders are to blame for maybe the service being a little bit flat. Maybe the song leader leads some pitchy songs. Maybe the prayer leader has a bunch of cliches in his prayer and we kind of zone out. Maybe the sermon is just meandering and it goes on and on and on, doesn't really have a point. I realize that does happen sometimes. But many times, let's be honest, 
Many times the truth is, it's not that the worship leader is flat. No, many times the problem is, I'm flat. That I am not doing my best. I am just going through the motions. I am offering up to God that which costs me nothing. What I need is to be reminded of the worthiness of the God that we serve. That this is not simply about checking off worship off of my religious to-do list and doing this with a how little can I do and still get by with sort of attitude. No, this is about recognizing the greatness of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, just how much God has done, not just for humanity, but how much God has done for me, both materially and spiritually. This is about recognizing that I was created for this very purpose, literally, to worship and serve God. And He is so worthy of my very best. This is not a question of whether or not God needs our worship. He doesn't. He doesn't need our worship. This is an issue of giving God what He deserves. And He deserves nothing less than our best. I think this point is probably driven home strongest in Malachi, the first chapter. One final passage this morning. In Malachi chapter 1, if you find Matthew, just take a sharp left. In Malachi chapter 1, in Malachi's day, there was a real problem with some stingy worship. People were holding back and they weren't giving their best. People were giving less than their best. People were giving God their scraps and their leftovers. And God confronts them about that with a stinging rebuke. In Malachi 1, this is verse 6, God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, well, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, oh, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show your favor, says the Lord of hosts? Drop down to verse 13. But you say, oh, what a weariness this is. You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the chief who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. These people were complaining of worship. They were half-hearted in their worship. They were thoughtless in their worship. They were not giving their best in worship. And surprise, surprise, they weren't getting a whole lot of out of that in that worship. You want to know what God's final assessment of them was? Look back up in verse 10. God says, oh... Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors. Someone that might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. And why, verse 11? From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God says He is worthy of the very best that we have to offer. He is deserving of hearts and minds that are fully engaged. 
He is deserving of eyes and ears and mouths that are fully participating. He is worthy of souls that are giving themselves fully to Him, the Lord of hosts. Too many times we arrive at worship with the expectation that something today is going to be done for me. When instead I need to come with the intention of doing something for God. And then doing that to the very best of my ability. That is what God deserves whenever we meet with Him in worship. Now I don't think that the Israelites struggled with being fully engaged that fateful morning when they assembled at the foot of Mount Sinai. I suspect that God's appearance on the mountain, I suspect that it probably would have made it very easy for them to have the right frame of mind that day as they came into the presence of Almighty God. And the truth is, there will be days where here we will have just incredible worship. And it will be really easy for us to be fully engaged, to give God our very best because, man, just everything's clicking and everything's going good. But you know what? There's also going to be days where for whatever reason, it'll be a struggle. Maybe I'm just not with it that day. Maybe everybody else is kind of dragging that day. All kinds of things can cause that to be a struggle. But I am of the belief that if we will remember these commandments, and more importantly, if we will put these commandments into practice, it won't matter what the struggle is. Because we will be determined to push through those barriers so that we can meet with the Lord and give Him worship that is pleasing to Him. You know, in many ways, the worship that we are offering to God now in this life, on this earth, it's kind of a dress rehearsal for the worship that we will one day give to Him in heaven. And so as we extend the invitation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's worth asking, have you prepared yourself so that you are ready to meet with Him there? And that involves a whole lot more than just getting up early and getting on time and getting my bath and getting my Bible ready. No, the preparation that we're talking about now is preparing your soul. Being ready to meet the Lord in judgment. If you are not a Christian this morning, can we encourage you to think very seriously and soberly about the condition of your soul? To think very seriously about the opportunity that is before you right now to confess your faith in Jesus as God's Son and to put Him on in baptism for the remission of your sins so that you can become a child of God. That will make you suited for that place where we'll get to worship God throughout the ages of the ages. Can we help you to be a Christian? Brother or sister, can we help you to be a better Christian? Pray with you and encourage you and help you to serve the Lord in a better way from this day forward. Whatever your need may be, this opportunity is for you. Take advantage of it by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.